Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome everybody to the fourth episode of the Mac Moment Show of the Get Found, Get Funded Network, where we talk to athletes and celebrities about entrepreneurship and investing. Today, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship and investing with our guest, Kim Casey. Kim is a business mentor and coach, entrepreneur, marketing specialist, angel investor, speaker, and author. Currently, Kim is the founder and CEO of She Suits, an organization that is advancing women in business through business profession, through professional development and leadership training programs. Kim was an All-American golfer at the University of Duke and competed on tour around the world as a professional golfer for five years. Being a professional golfer is only the start of her story as Kim went on to be a startup founder, board member, angel investor, and philanthropist. Kim, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you today about all the amazing things you've done in your career. Um, As someone who grew up playing golf and then went on to become a professional golfer, what was it like when you you achieved that dream? Wow, that's a great question. Um, You know, I started playing golf competitively when I was six years old, uh, my first tournament with my dad back in the day. And by the time I turned pro, I had already been chasing that dream for close to 20 years. So it was, uh, I was tired. (laughs) (laughs) I was tired by then. And, um, and it was an incredible journey, you know, going through junior golf, amateur golf, then college golf at Duke, and then finally getting to become a professional. It was just so exciting and uh, like nothing I could have ever imagined until I experienced it. Awesome. And so you mentioned your father there, so I want to take a step back. So your father himself was a professional golfer. How much of an influence was he on your life? Uh, he was a pretty big influence. I sometimes joke and say I was kind of the son my father never <laughs> had because uh, the only way I got to spend time with my dad when I was little was going to the golf course with him and playing golf. And um, and that was just an amazing experience. It was a real bond that we had. You know, he was my hero growing up. And to get to share a sport like golf with him was really incredible. That sounds incredible. That sounds a lot like Tiger Woods' story. Uh, it, it is, and uh, I actually played, you know, I actually played a bunch of tournaments with Tiger when we were really young, like eight, nine, ten years old, so um, there were a whole group of us that were junior golfers uh, at the same time that went on to become professionals, so it's definitely a journey. That's a really cool journey. I, I wish I could say I played basketball with Michael Jordan or golfed with Tiger Woods, but okay, that's all right. No, <laughs> humble brag. We'll let you go with that. Um, so... When your professional golfing career was over, you and some friends of yours got together and co-founded a fintech company. Is that correct? Uh, 
I love that you call it a fintech company. That was a long time ago, and uh, I don't think fintech was a thing. Um, <laughs> sometimes I joke and say it was, you know, really a finance company, and for us, technology meant using uh, a computer for the first time to do our business instead of a fax machine. So, um, but yes, it was financial services, real estate, investing, and development. It was really fun and exciting uh, transition to go from being a pro athlete, traveling all over the world, to I think as an athlete, I always had this strange fantasy about going to work and sitting at a desk and getting to wear a business suit and having a 401k. I was like obsessed with a 401k. (laughs) And, um, you know, kind of creating a company from nothing is an exhilarating process. So for us, it was a a wild ride. So what was the outcome of that company? Uh, We ran that company for almost nine years. And um, at the time, I was... I, I reached a point where I wasn't really happy with what I was doing. I kind of wanted to get back into sports, uh, especially in the technical, like the apparel side of sports. And I wanted to do more work with women. Kind of had this um, dream of starting a women's active apparel company because at the time, uh, active apparel for women, there just weren't a lot of great options. You know, this is right about the time that Lululemon was starting to really take hold and come out. And there was uh, not as much great technical apparel that was designed for women and their bodies. So I decided to go back to graduate school and uh, learn some things I didn't know and then went on to start a company in that area. Got it. So after that first company, you decided to go back to school and get your MBA at UCLA. I did. And so why was that an important thing for you, you know, having already gone through undergrad, having been a professional golfer, having helped run a business, why was it important for you to then go back to school and get your MBA? Sure. So at at that time in my professional journey, my personal journey, Mm -hmm. I guess, I knew how to start a company. I started a company that had been very successful and I felt like I was struggling with some areas of my personal development as a leader um, and really being able to lead, motivate, and inspire teams. Um, you know, one of the downsides to being a golfer is that golf is a very independent sport. So, you know, I think athletes make great entrepreneurs and they go on to use their athletic skills and the things they learn in competition to be great business people. Uh, But golfers are a little bit of a disadvantage because they don't spend their professional careers on teams and playing with teams and learning that team dynamic that can be so important to business success. And so I felt like I needed to get immersed in that kind of like team building environment and learn how to build and lead teams. And and for me, business school and getting my MBA was something I thought would really help me achieve that goal. That was a very smart decision by you and a very um, very self-aware decision, right? Um, very often the founding CEO of companies are removed by their second or third round of funding. And the reason isn't because the investors don't like the founder or don't think the founder's good enough, it's usually that the founder doesn't have the skill set to grow a business. They usually have the skill set to start a business, but they never really acquire the skill set to grow one. And a lot of founders don't take the time to grow that skill set as they're growing their business. So I very often tell founders that they should get an executive coach or even go take some business courses so that they're prepared for when that time comes. It sounds like you saw that coming and you wanted to to get ahead of that. So I I definitely applaud you for that. And I think more founders need to do that. Um, But then it's also interesting. So while you were in graduate school, you decided to start a company, right? So in 2006, you started uh, 
Calix. Thank you, everybody. I'm sorry. I don't know why I can't get this name out. But in 2006, you started Calix Technology, which created revolutionary sports bras that incorporated cutting edge construction and top notch and top notch composition, creating an overall superior support bra. Uh, they were uh, you were even uh, selected by Shape Magazine as the best sports bra for every size. But that comes later in the story, right? Um, in the earlier days, they weren't as glamorous. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those earlier days when you're trying to get that company off the ground? And what was it like to pour a lot of your own money into a struggling venture that then was also rejected by the sharks on Shark Tank? Uh, <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. Well, yeah, I, I went to graduate school with the idea of starting this company, you know, having already started my professional golf career was kind of a business in itself. You know, we had to raise a fund in order to, um, to compete at the professional level around the world. So I'd already raised a fund for that and then started a second company. So I knew going into, you had to raise a fund to golf. Can you talk to us about that? I've never even heard of this. I was, I this was wondering the same thing. Like, travel sponsorship. Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do like, you think professional athletes um, Thanks for backing up and asking that question. <laughs> I was I, clueless. I, I have no clue. So, so as a professional golfer, who are you pitching to raise that fund? Is it sponsors? Is it Like angel companies? investors. Like, uh, so you're you literally know. pitching individual people to say, hey, I'm a golfer. I'm really good. Pay my way, and if I win, you get part of my earnings. Yeah, we formed a partnership, and um, and mm -hmm. I, I think that we were not. I was not unique in this. This is a lot the way a lot of professional like a sport like golf, where there's not a team. You know, golfers don't get drafted by right. uh, the Golden State Warriors and wind up with a fifty million dollar contract right. right out of college. So you really have to learn how to hustle and figure out ways to. Um, pay for your travel and, and by that time I had a lot of um, people in the golf industry who are also very successful business people and they were you know angel investors some of them were probably the same guys that might invest in like racehorses right. you know uh, or sailing <laughs> uh, you know uh, and no clue. people raise partnerships I think in the golf and for golfers they're you know they kind of friends and family angels and they raise partnerships to at least help them uh, go through Q school you know or travel all around on these different tours um, and they're invested in you and your success I hope I'm not sharing a secret here I never heard so, so uh, in a situation like that like what kind of percentage do they get from your golf career then oh man Mac that was long I don't I don't remember I'll well, tell you what those, I mean, those people were really angels because they did not get a lot they did not get a lot back but, the, but that introduced you to this whole fundraising concept so, but you didn't realize it at the time of course no. you had no idea but you had to fundraise for your own career your golfing career yeah, you know, most, I mean, most of my friends when they, when I graduated from college, most of my close friends uh, got a job, you know, they got a suit and they got a job and they went to an office every day. I got on a plane and went to Bangkok, Thailand to play with like the king of Thailand in a pro-am. That was my first like work experience uh, after college. And um, wow. so it's just a totally different world right. as a professional athlete and a totally different um way of getting paid and of raising, you know, of the idea that you're raising money to pay for your job is kind of, today I would think that's crazy, <laughs> but like back then that's just what happened. And after, you know, as Max started out saying, by the time 
I turned pro, I'd been at it for almost 20 years. So kind of that was part of the process that we I knew I had to go through in order to make well, that dream a reality. And the big thing about that, and you mentioned earlier when we were talking, that you moved around a lot and you had to rebuild networks. And so it actually taught you to build networks and to find people with like interest that can support you, advocate for you, or just people to hang out with. So I think it's... You know, that's a big piece to not only fundraising, but then also supporting the business. Yeah, and when you're traveling around the world for months and months at a time, you know, kind of living out of a suitcase, yeah. that ability to connect with people and, and form networks in really, in places you never imagined being is really mm -hmm. important just to your um, your career success, but also for your, I think, emotional well-being right. and, you know, just getting the support you need to succeed. Uh, it's a really can be a really lonely and grueling journey to be a pro athlete. And before we get to the Shark Tank, I just want to, because you mentioned the fundraising and your relationship with your dad kind of building you as a brand from the age of six and him believing in you and spending time with him, when did he know that you were going to be a professional golfer? And how did that play into him helping, potentially helping you build that fund? Well, wow, what a great question. <laughs> I like, I, you know, I actually think I have an answer to that. I have two answers. And the first answer is that uh, I don't think that, like, he knew. I think it was just, like, assumed, you know, okay. from a very early age, mm -hmm. that was a career path that was laid out for me. And I don't know who laid it. You know, I don't know whether me. It was, it was fun, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. This is pretty, it was pretty glamorous, cool yeah. thing to do. But I was um, very young. I was, like, 10 years old. And I played in... I played in the Ladies City Championship of the town we we lived in at the time, and I won. Wow. And um, if you can imagine, like, there were all these, like, 40, 50-year-old mm -hmm. women that were, like, ladies who lunch and play golf, and here comes this 10-year-old kid, and uh, I beat them all. And that was, like, a game changer, I think, in my life and in my parents' eyes. Like, they were like, wow, she's, she's good. I mean, like, maybe she could be really great. And that's when I started kind of growing as an athlete and, and up-leveling my skills. And I started playing more on a national level mm -hmm. or before I had just been doing some local competition yeah. and, um, you know, taking steps up a ladder mm -hmm. to reach this ultimate goal of playing professionally. Those poor ladies, they probably never forget when they got beat by a 10-year-old. <laughs> you have ruined those women's lives. That's so, uh, sorry to have derailed the show already. <laughs> That's what happens when you invite your two other co-hosts on your, on your show. Yes, this is true, but thank you for that insight, because, like, I don't think many people understand that that's part of the professional golfing world. They just think you win tournaments, you get sponsors, and the sponsors that help you go through it, but it sounds like there's a whole lot more to it, and uh, we could probably have a whole show on that alone. But um, getting back to my original question, so, so what were the early days of Kalex like when you were pouring your personal money into and the, the venture itself is struggling, and then to even go on to Shark Tank and have them turn you down what what were those days like what was it like putting your own money in and it not taking off the way you thought it would right off the bat what <laughs> what, what was what was that experience like um stressful uh stressful and uh, also i think too it was like a real gut check um i don't know you know it was like a gut check it was like one of those moments in your life where you kind of find out who you really are and what matters most to you and um you know, I had this passion, I had this dream, and, I, and a lot of it was a theme in my life, I think, that I really wanted to empower women and support them and encourage them and, and also to show the world 
on my in my career as a woman that women are capable of doing these things you know that men are doing very well on a regular basis it's sometimes society takes for granted that women can do too and starting a business in the apparel industry and in the sporting goods industry for me was so important so there were a lot of moments where I probably I could have quit and I probably should have quit and gone out and gotten a job and uh, gotten a paycheck and um, I think that desire to really see the see it through and to keep kind of hustling and figuring up up-leveling my skills again mm -hmm. is a theme we're talking about today but right. you know you, you have an idea for a company and Going from idea to execution is what makes or breaks a company, and and the ability to keep going. You know, by the time you see a successful startup, it looks so easy. Uh, but most of them, two three years go by from that idea to the time the company is like winning awards or in the news or looking like they're uh, about to be the next billion dollar uh, unicorn company. And most people don't get to see the messy moments when everything's chaotic and the founders, you know, I was a mess for a lot of those years. <laughs> a lot of stress and, um, and a, a lot of, of, of moments where you just don't know what to do and you have to really look deep inside yourself to find the strength and the courage to find a solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, piggybacking on, you know, the Shark Tank episode and probably something you heard a lot, what was it like for you as a founder? You, you were starting up a perils company and you're going against very um, uh, embedded industries that have been around for a long time and you had people ask you, do we really need another sports bra? <laughs> All right, what, so let's what talk. What was that like? <laughs> let's talk about, so shark, my Shark Tank experience is really interesting, and mm -hmm. I've never, I don't really talk about it very often uh, because it was also very painful for me. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I got recruited to be on Shark, shark Tank out of grad school. You know, UCLA Anderson has an amazing entrepreneur program. And so I was recruited to be on the show right out of it, and it was the first season. Oh. So wow. um, I was a startup on Shark Tank, which at the time was a startup. And, you know, there were some moments in that first season when they didn't know if the show was going to get picked up. They didn't know if the show would be going forward. They didn't know if we'd be on the air or not. And who were the, uh, I'm sure you remember who the Sharks were at the uh, time, because I know they swap them out. Yeah, well, Damon John, uh, oh my God, you're going to test me to make sure I know everybody's <laughs> name still. No. Uh, you know, Damon and Barbara and... Mark Cuban wasn't on right. yet. I think Kevin right. Harrington was on at the time. And Barbara was the only woman. Mm -hmm. And then Robert and um, that, that mean, nasty man, <laughs> <laughs> whose name I will not say. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, just getting onto the show, I think, uh, you know, it, these days, 100,000 people a year apply and right. maybe like 50, 60 get on the air. So I think as a businesswoman, I knew the opportunity and the power of PR there and right. that like, please just put per bucket of slime on my head. I don't care what you do to me, put me on the air and let me take my company that's at an idea stage on national television. Mm -hmm. What better way to launch a business? Um, not getting an investment was heartbreaking. Uh, because, you know, you have so much excitement, enthusiasm, mm -hmm. and passion, and you want them to love you, and you want them to invest in you, and when they don't, you're just, like, rocked. Right. 
the reality TV is not always real. <laughs> so this is the one thing I like to tell people and it kind of shocks them. Uh, you know, you don't just show up on stage and then uh, shoot the episode and have it air on TV that night. So there was a very, there were a couple months between the time we filmed our Shark Tank experience and it actually went to air. and. And I got rejected, and I went through a whole like cycle of emotions. Where like, is this really awful? Should I quit? Like, what do I do now? And um, in between the time we filmed and the time we went to air, we actually raised, I think, three times as much money from angels and venture capitalists that we had been asking for on the air. So um, that was pretty exciting and a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. Um, but, but, but what was it like as an entrepreneur? Because there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are in spaces where there's a crowded marketplace or they're going against, you know, embedded industries and they get the question. And this happens especially for founders who are creating products and, um, for specific affinity groups, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like... Like hair care. Do we need another hair care company? Do we need another sports bra? Like what, what was that like for you when you were raising money and how were you able to push back against that? Yeah, well, we did a lot of research. So, you know, there there were, um, there were was, was athletic apparel and sports bras for women at the time, but it wasn't working. You know, just because there's a product out there in the market doesn't mean it's a good product, exactly. and it doesn't mean it meets the needs of all people. Like, we were just such a small little company, and, and after we appeared on television, we were contacted by so many women that we didn't even imagine had challenges mm-hmm. that we needed to solve. Plus size women, uh, women with very small chests, very big chests, um, you know, athletes of all different shapes and sizes. And today, in today's world, I think we're seeing more and more startups create products for these affinity groups that no one had been thinking of before. So, um, you know, maybe we were really early stage there where we were trying to create niche products for people that weren't being served. That's amazing. And so Calix went on to become a very successful company. Um, and then after that, you went on to have several other businesses and several other companies that were successful. And now, as someone who has had five exits, good God. You have I, five exits? I, well, I've, I've started five companies. Okay, you started five, okay, you have, you started five <laughs> companies. My bad. I don't know when oversell myself here. You could have let me oversell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm okay. fine with it, too. <laughs> you know, as a five-time entrepreneur, you're now yourself an angel investor and a member of a women's angel group here in D.C., Citrine Angels. Um, what made you want to become the investor you were always looking for? And what's the difference between being an angel investor and being a member of an angel group? So before you ask that question, answer that question, I'm sorry, Max. I'm, I'm, we're still in Max show. I'm just going to let you, uh, let me just say this. I'm Zena. This is Christina. Christina. We're the co-hosts of Get Found Good Fund along with Aurelia. And Mac invited us to be on the show because we just recorded our, our, our previous show. So thank you, Mac, for having us on. Sorry we're taking you off. It's all good. Off the rails a little bit. But I have one question going back to your sports bra because I'm okay. an athlete, so that's one of the reasons I'm asking. So how do you feel about these companies like Lululemon and some of these other companies that are coming on the scene today versus when you were out at that time? Well, I think Lululemon's a, a wonderful company. You know, everybody's got a pair of Lululemon yoga pants. <laughs> or five. Uh, or five. You know, my butt looks, they, they changed 
the way I feel about my butt, to be honest. I hope people can appreciate <laughs> Any woman who has worn Lululemon yoga pants will understand what I mean. You know, they're just fantastic. And they were started in Canada by a man, uh, you know, and, and they did an incredible thing for women athletes, I think. And we were part of that wave of awareness that there's market, you know, to Max point too, again, like there's, there's products in the market, but they're not serving all women. And, um, you know, we wanted to be that woman owned company that created a product for women by women. And, um, and we expanded beyond sports bras over the years that we were, uh, operating as a company and, you know, into full apparel. And it was just, you know, it was so exciting. And I think that there were companies like Lululemon were a sign that there was a market there, that there was an opportunity for more and more companies to come in. So I, sometimes I think having a big player like that or a company that's really getting traction that quickly is a sign that, that there's a need in the market. Right. And it almost, in my mind, helped validate us that they were so successful. Thank you. And... Now that I can get back to my question. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go back to the serious. This anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so what made you wanna become the investor that you were always looking for? And what's the difference in being an angel investor versus investing in the angel group? Okay, there's, let me see if I can take that one by one. So okay. I think, you know, my experience with angel investors is that uh, a lot of them are former entrepreneurs themselves. So they understand the process. They understand how hard it is to get that funding. Um, to get started and you know especially for women and women of color and minorities and these underserved groups that don't have access to the networks that where a lot of angel money comes from it's even harder so I think as a woman you know I really want to pay it forward uh, the same way some of the male angels who helped me along when I was just getting started paid forward their success to me I want to pay that forward to other women and you know let them know that there are people supporting them and encourage them to keep moving forward with their ideas and um, you know angel investing is is not venture capital it's not um, it's not bank if these if most of the companies that are seeking angel funds could get a bank loan they probably would because it's a lot of work to uh, secure angel funding and I I'm very early stage so I'm not one of these angels that's making huge like hundred two hundred thousand dollar investments you know I, I donate and and invest small amounts of money when no, you said I it right can. donate <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, I mean, I, that came out probably not quite right. <laughs> but, it was a Freudian but, slip. But, but sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's how I think I see it. Yeah. Because, like, you know, the company, when a company is at a stage where that $2,500 or $5,000 $10,000 investment is, or the Kickstarter company mm -hmm. that needs $100 from you, um, when that's make or break for them, right. I mean, you're giving them that money because they're so early stage. There's no proof of concept. There's no um, market made. You know, they they just need to be able to take the next step in the process. And you're really betting on the jockey, not the mm -hmm. horse. You know, you're betting on the entrepreneur, and you're giving them the fuel they need to move their car down the road. Yes. So, but no, it is investing. It is investing. It's very high risk investing. It's very high risk investing. And it takes a, a, quite a long time to see returns in some of those investments. And so what's, what's the difference like for you being an angel investor yourself versus investing with a group in the angel group like Citrine Angels? 
Well, Stitching Angels, you know, Allison Redpath is a former Wall Street banker who um, is now back in the D.C. area, and she started Stitching Angels. She, she first told me about it, uh, I think, over a year ago. And I was just so excited because there's such a need for angel investment groups that are not only supporting female entrepreneurs, but are also encouraging women to become investors. You know, women just don't always get the, like, financial education that they need to really succeed and manage their money. And um, so what I love about Citrine Angels is that it, it's focused on both sides of the table there, that it's really focused on encouraging women to become investors, to diversify their portfolios, and they're really working hard, Allison and some of the other executive committee members are working hard to create these education programs to help teach women how to be angel investors, and there's a real need there, you know. You can't just expect them to become angel investors overnight at the snap of the finger. Uh, so these education programs are really important to helping them build their confidence and their capabilities to make sound investments. And as well, you know, they're supporting the early stage companies. And I love the group aspect of it, the this networking and the camaraderie and the peer-to-peer -peer support that happens when you're part of an angel group. It gives you a lot more um, confidence in what you're doing. <laughs> I think I'm so impressed with what Allison is doing for Citrine, similar to what Natalia um, did with Pipeline Angels as well, yes. which has a lot of education, particularly for women, binary femmes who want to get into uh, investing. But, I, but um, I wanted to ask you this question, just your thoughts on it. There's a few statistics that we recently heard from Jean Chotsky around just the empowerment of women, particularly with money. And so, well, one thing that she mentioned I want to caveat is that it, it will uh, pay parity probably won't happen until 2130, right? So that's 100 years from now or, or more. But a few statistics that she mentioned, I want your kind of gut reaction to this. Uh, for every 100 men today that graduate from college, 132 women graduate. Um, that uh, globally, women will account for about 75% of wealth going forward, which will undoubtedly impact giving, donations, philanthropy, and investment. And the third is that women will have two inheritance, one from their parents and one from their spouse. And of course, you know, we may have differing opinions depending on what demographic you're looking at, but just in terms of those statistics, what's your raw gut reaction to that? Yeah, so my, raw, my gut reaction to that is that I, I, I just wanna see the source for the data. Um, you know, I've, I've uh, as part of my career recently, I've done some teaching on women's entrepreneurship at the university level. I've traveled around the world speaking about women's entrepreneurship. I was recently in Pakistan um, to teach a class for women entrepreneurs there and speak at a global women's summit. And you know, the, the, some of the Mideastern countries, you know, where they still have things like guardianship and where women aren't able to get a loan by themselves without a male signature. Um, I feel like these are very optimistic and ambitious ambitious statistics and I just want to know where they're coming from uh, I, and I, I'm disturbed as well uh, I'm, I'm speaking really from the heart here right. so um, I'm, I'm just curious you know in the back of my mind the wheels are turning thinking all right we've got 132 women graduating from college for every hundred men yet in the c-suite we see still less than I think 18 percent female CEOs maybe there's like five or six in the fortune 500 so something's happening from the time women graduate from college to the time 
time that they're at a stage in their career where they should be senior executives. Um, and, and do we really think that in, in this world that, that suddenly there's going to be a 75% shift of wealth uh, without any pushback? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist or anything. But I'm just, you know, the statistics show that there's a lot of things that happen in the world to keep women from having parity and equal power and equal access to um, opportunities. So I think women should be aware and educate themselves about how to manage their finances, and they should really. Um, not just kind of sit back and you know I've counseled a lot of women over the years who have lost their spouses or their husbands and they don't know where their bank accounts are they don't know where their safe deposit key is they, they're not on the mortgage you know financial education for women is so important and it's really important for women to um, to take control of their financial futures um, Especially, I think, for women who are older, you know, kind of 50 and older, that it's a different world out there in a lot of ways. Yep, I, I completely agree. And so I just thank you for that. Um, and I wanted to just piggyback on the Citrine Angels and organizations like that because I do think there's a financial education component and a camaraderie component where you see other women doing things that you may not have thought that you could do. And so I just want to encourage uh, organizations like that to continue. Yeah, thank yeah. you for saying that. And it is, it's a safe space. You know, that's a great thing. It's a safe space where women can learn from each other. And I think that's so important because sometimes women uh, in their, you know, especially as they have families and children, if they're leaving the workforce for a few years, they can become very isolated. And, and it's a way for women to stay connected to uh, the bigger world right. and, and really learn from women who are in all different phases and places in their lives and careers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So... Not only are you an investor, but sometimes with these companies you work with, you can take on a slightly different role or title, like a board member, advisor, or influencer, right? So how do you decide which type of role is right for you when looking at a company? Or do companies come to you telling you what they think is the most effective way for you to work with them? How does that work? What a great question. I think it's usually a process and um, it's a process that takes some time because you know each meeting you have with an entrepreneur. I've been a mentor the last few years for a company called American Corporate Partners in New York, and um, they mentor military veterans who are transitioning from uh, service to civilian life. And I work with a lot of women who want to become entrepreneurs, and you know that's that's a process where it takes several months, if not years, to get to your relationship to the point where you want to be that involved with someone, that you want to be an advisor or a board member. And um, I think it's a just something that evolves over time and you really see who's investing the time and who's staying with their business. And, um, and sometimes it becomes a negotiation too because like, as an advisor or mentor or investor, you know, that, that mentor and advisor's time is very valuable. Mm -hmm. And they need to get something. There comes a point in time where you're putting so much effort into the company that you need to get some kind of a return, you right. know. So I think you kind of have to have a tough conversation and say, hey, I'd like to have this be a more formal role. I think I, I, think I deserve to have some equity here um, and maybe a title and I can help you. I can be more effective as an advisor if I have a title and I have a little bit of skin in the game with your company. Got it. And so how do these companies find you or how do you find the companies that you want to invest in? Do they just approach you? Do they send you an email? How <laughs> 
how does that happen? How was that process? <laughs> I'm only laughing because I've just I've been uh, you know with launch I'm launching a new company myself right mm-hmm. now so I've been updating my bio and my title and all my social media profiles and I added angel investor to my LinkedIn profile Ooh. and Ooh. I'll tell you what people come out of the woodwork you know in today's world people can search for very specific yes. terms and they find you and I've gotten a lot of pitches coming to me <laughs> after adding that uh, just that one phrase to my bio so um you know most of the companies i've i've connected with and become involved in i have met through some kind of face-to-face interaction whether it's from like an american corporate partners or like a citrine angels um, usually something that's bringing t- people together face-to-face so that there's like a real personal connection and um, a real relationship that you're forming over time so they shouldn't just send you a linkedin message and be like hey here's my company my pitch deck you know, I mean, if it's working for them, more power to them. But in my experience, that is not that is not how the world works. No matter how much uh, social media networks would like us to believe that it does, and it does work for some people, I know. But but uh, no, I mean. So you haven't received a pitch yet that that made you stop and say, "Oh, let me dig a little bit deeper into this." Have you? You haven't. I've seen some great pitches. You have. I've seen some great pitches, and and in some cases they are industries that I just don't know enough about mm. that I want to be involved in. Um, I when I when I see things that are not right for me, I usually try to either point them in the right direction. I try to make an introduction to someone that I know uh, that could help them. Uh, especially if it's something that looks exciting. You know, I've worked with agencies and um, consulting. I've worked with hundreds of companies, so I've seen hundreds of pitches over the last few years of my career. And um, when you see those good ones, you really want to help them because you know that there's an exciting opportunity there. Anyone sports-related at all? I have seen some some good sports and fitness. some sports and fitness companies, you know, it's something I'm very passionate about. Right, so. if they read your, <laughs> if they read your bio, they'll know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting the, 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 getting the eye rolling sign over here from Matt. You're just Go stealing ahead. my question. That's all. I'm just saying. <laughs> the question was coming, but it's okay. You could, you could jump in. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but actually my next question was, um, as an investor myself, I know you see far more companies that you don't invest in. So what is the process for you to choosing those winners that you do want to give your money to? Like, what is it that you look for? What are the specific signs of, I think my money can help this company? Yeah, I think two things, time and traction. Um, You know, you see when you're in this space, when you're working with entrepreneurs and you're trying to encourage and empower them, um, you see a lot of people with great ideas and it takes time for them to take those ideas and execute on them. And I think as an investor, you want to see, um, you want to get to know that person as a, as a human being and as, and see what their kind of character and integrity is like, you know, are they reliable? Are they, um, learning and growing, um, you're developing a relationship with them as well. So I, I see most investments get made over time, you know, not like Shark Tank where it's like yes or no right now, kind of based on the idea that you're building those relationships and you're watching the company evolve and scale over time. Um, and going from idea to, you know, I teach a lot of startup 
and business planning classes. So I get to see people when they really just have an idea. But then you see them over a year, 18 months, and that idea becomes a, a business and they start to get customers and revenue. And eventually, you know, sometimes their needs change for financing change, but at the same time, sometimes the, that investment opportunity becomes more and more exciting. Absolutely. And so to piggyback on what uh, Zena just mentioned, are there specific industries that speak to you, like sports and apparel, or are you interested across multiple things? There was a time a few years ago where I was doing a little bit more investing in product-based companies like apparel and fitness companies. Um, technology is changing the retail industry. In my mind, technology is changing the retail industry so much. So um, the opportunities to invest in like fashion tech or fintech, um, also e-learn, I have a weird, a lot of history with e-learning. Um, those are some of the areas that I understand in real estate. Those are areas that I understand. So I feel more comfortable investing in those spaces. Um, there's a lot of exciting technology out there that I don't understand. And even if I see a pitch deck and think this is great, um, <laughs> it's not, you know, not the right for me, for my investment tolerance and risk tolerance and kind of investment thesis. And I would say that's that's pretty consistent for angel investors. They typically tend to invest in the industry and spaces that they have knowledge of because not only is it something they understand, it's also something that they can help the entrepreneur with, right? Yeah. Like angel investors are more than just money. They're 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 partners, right? And so if you have a partner who doesn't know anything about your industry, then they help you as much, right? And I'm a very early stage investor too. Again, you know, I think I said earlier, I'm not writing the big jacks. So um, for me, you know, I can I can have a little more fun with my investing in companies like fashion and fitness are kind of fun. You know, it's really exciting. But sometimes those investments are much smaller than I think the entrepreneurs would like them to be. <laughs> money is money, man. So um, and, and time is money, and opening your network yeah. is money. And yes. I think as an angel investor myself, that's what I think about as well. Is you can you can invest in the company you invest time in the entrepreneur or the entrepreneur's team right so you mentioned one thing you mentioned earlier was you went back to get your um, MBA partly because you wanted to get more experience from a leadership perspective and inspiring a team uh, and that's one thing that I look for in the entrepreneur as well I actually asked the question did they play sports and just because I have I believe that anyone who's played sports has something different than those who haven't played sports that might be my bias and I will say that out loud I think so, but I, um, I think the other part is just knowing where you're giving you know, your time and your money to the, yeah. the, the entrepreneur and their team. And that's a really great point. You know, we don't, we don't talk about like the power and the value of a network. And, um, and when someone is willing to open their network to you, you know, if it's just like, if you just passion connections on like LinkedIn yeah. or uh, so somebody you don't know and you've never met face to face, you know, we started the conversation kind of with getting pitches on LinkedIn mm -hmm. uh, where you've never met the person face to face, you know, and you're just sharing your network in that way. That's one thing. But like when you're really opening your network to someone and you're writing letters of introduction and advocating for someone and saying, you need to see this person, they're incredible and they have a really amazing investment idea that I think is worthy of your time and money um, that's a big deal so I think entrepreneurs you know my best advice to entrepreneurs is really to take that for what it is it's really it's really valuable and it's a big investment someone's making in you absolutely and so yeah that's that's true you're the network that your investors whether it be angel investors venture capitalists or just advisors opens you up to as an entrepreneur you need to value that right yeah. like as an investor 
for the companies that I invest in, I opened up my personal network. You know, these are connections I built over years. Yes. So for me to make the introduction to to you, if you don't follow through, or if I go to reach out to that person, like, yeah, I, I, I saw the, the email, but that person never followed up on the email. Not only does that have a reflection on you, it's a reflection on me. Right. And I, I, I made that introduction because I trusted you to follow up and do what was right. Yeah. You know, and that means a lot. Uh, social equity is finite. You know, when you lose it, you lose it. Yeah. And um, every time somebody opens up their network and opens up their social equity to you, you need to value that. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great social equity. That's a great phrase. And even, you know, when you're opening your network to people, just those little off the beaten path here, but you know, you're as a mentor, you know, I do a lot of work as a mentor, you, you're always following up. It's always your role as a mentor to stay involved. You know, never just make an introduction and like, um, trust that people are gonna do with it what you would. You know, it, it, the more that you communicate and facilitate and stay involved with entrepreneurs and their businesses, the better it is for everyone because entrepreneurs really need that accountability. They do, and that's a really nice mentor. So I'm gonna just do the introduction. And when I talk to the person you haven't followed up, just know you're going the naughty list. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but then the other thing about investing is, you know, angel investing and investing directly for equity in companies can be really risky. Uh, have any of the companies you've invested in failed or not done what you expected them to do? You know, what are some of those horror stories that you might have of, you know, investing that just didn't go the way you thought it would? I have failed more times in my life than I can count. I have fallen down. I have or learned. Spectacular failures. And um, I like to say that I'm always trying to fail forward, you know, because you do learn from your mistakes and you grow. And you can't learn and grow unless you're making mistakes. Um, I've, I've had, as you know, quite an investor and advisor, I've had the unpleasant task of having to shut down some companies. You know, we always talk about like startups, but there's stuff out there like windups and shutdowns and turnarounds where companies are not able to pivot or they run out of money and, um, and no one really talks about what happens, you know, when you have to shut a company down and you have to make some of those difficult calls to call the creditors and to go through the legal process of, of winding up a company. So I've had to do that and it's really hard. Um, and in some cases, the founders that I was working with just weren't able to do it. You know, they just couldn't. They, they just, they were broken by that point. And I've stepped in a few times and helped out there. And that's really tough. Uh, and in many cases, people are relieved just that there's, you know, someone to talk to and that there's some closure. But those are really unpleasant stories that you don't like to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but I think those are things we need to talk about, right? Um, there's a lot of things in the world of being an entrepreneur and building a business that we don't talk about. We only talk about the glamour side and all the good stuff. We don't talk about the stress or the heartaches or how hard it is or like you'll see a company get acquired for a billion dollars but you didn't know that that company was like three months away from running out of cash right like things like that happen and, and we just we're not gonna bring up what company you just talking you just mentioned no no no, no, no. <laughs> i'm just giving examples because i like, know which one you're talking about like, there are a lot of companies there's a, there's a lot of companies like that right and so like you know, or the idea of what's a wind up or a wind down or what's it like to be an entrepreneur, have a company and have your investors step in and like, look, you're in too much debt. Right. You're not making any money. We're going to shut the company down. You know, I can only imagine how those entrepreneurs felt. And, you know, they, they weren't going to go quiet. They probably went kicking and screaming. But there has to be somebody who steps in and is the level head in that situation. 
Yeah, I think having a level head and sometimes they need permission to let it go. Right. You know, sometimes you really do mm. need someone who's been there before and been through the process a couple of times to say, look, you need to go live your best life and this is not it. Because like, it can be emotional. For it's me. really emotional. You know, for it's not your, just the entrepreneur, the team, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs when they build their team, it's like family. And so you feel like you're letting folks down. And, you know, I think also as being an advisor or a board member, being in that position to have to be honest with someone, that's not always easy either. And I think sometimes people take on mentorship, advisory board roles because they think they can contribute and it's all going to be good. But when you're on the board and you have to actually you know, be the parent in the room and say, we need to go this other direction, it could be difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. And, and that's, you know, entrepreneurs are really conditioned to um, pitch perfectly. You know, you're giving your pitch, you're showing them your best side. Uh, but there's a very, that's why I kind of keep emphasizing that time is so important in building those relationships. You want to get past the, the beautiful facade and you want to see what's really under the covers, kind of. You know, you want to see where the skeletons are and you want to know what the challenges are and see who the real person so that you can really help them on a deeply personal level. And so um, my last question for you, you know, we've talked about your exploits as a businesswoman and an investor, but you're also a philanthropist. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you do to give your time back and give your money back to the community. Yeah, most of the stuff that I do in terms of giving back, again, is focused on women um, and programs that are supporting women uh, at all different levels and, and stages. You know, lately I'm trying to do things, I think in, for my career I'm working on trying to have a bigger impact when I'm working with people. So opportunities where I can speak or coach or have a workshop. Um, you know, I've done some work with women that are transitioning from, I mentioned military to civilian life, uh, women who are transitioning from uh, being incarcerated back into mainstream society, you know, women who just need uh, someone to support them and they need a little help. So that, that's the stuff that I think I'm really passionate about. And um, social impact is a big thing today. We probably don't have enough time to jump into it, but I love, <laughs> show too. I love talking, you know, to social entrepreneurs and, and it's just a little bit different mentality there. But Really, for me, it's, it's helping women uh, as much as possible and giving them that encouragement and helping them really, you know, believe in themselves and, and find the tools they need to keep moving forward. That is so awesome. One more thing before we hop out of here. I forgot to ask you. Apparently, you're launching a new company on Monday, the She Suite. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> is it kind of like a she shed? <laughs> well, you know, originally the the she suite was a play on the C suite, and we wanted to put a women a woman in it. Uh, but I think along, around that same time that we were coming up with the name for the company, we saw the she shed commercial. I love that where commercial. The, I don't know. It's insurance. The husband burned down the she shed. No. Yes, <laughs> yes. Where the husband <laughs> burned down the <laughs> she shed. And um, I thought, oh man, this is too good not to use. Like, so we kind of came with a play on words, the she suite, and uh, we've been using using that title since like 2016 I think but um, it's a it's a company that's really focused on advancing women in business and um, trying to make a greater impact by reaching more women in the United States and around the world we're really focused on professional development and leadership training for women entrepreneurs executives and organizations that want to empower women to reach their full potential in the workplace and we offer both uh, e-learning and um, in-person face-to-face events so that women can um, 
get the uh, skills, the education, mentorship, resources, and support they need to succeed. Awesome. And where can people find out more information about the She Suite? Uh, we are online, thesheSuite.org. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be. I've been writing this name for uh, a couple of years now, and I have not I done. I think it's the coolest <laughs> name. And that's what came to mind immediately when you said it. I said, that's the She Suite. <laughs> It is a tongue twister to pronounce the She Suite. Uh, you can meet us in the She Suite uh, in D.C., Miami, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. This year, we're hosting uh, two, three, four-day workshops for women, um, and you can see us at thesheSuite.org. Cool, cool. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. You are an awesome individual. I am lucky to have you here on this show. We are lucky to have you Absolutely. here. So thank you for your time today, Kim. Oh, you guys, thank you for having me. This has been such a treat, and it's been great talking to you, and um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Make sure you check us out on the website at getfoundgetfunded.com. Sign up for our newsletter, and check out our social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And, of course, listen every month, and don't miss an episode. Have a good one, everybody.